Well, Merry Christmas. Woo. It's a little tingy there. A little tingy. Let me try that again. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right. As we said last week, the king is coming. The king is here. So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors. We are in a little uh, Advent series. We are calling Why I Love Christmas. And actually, before I hop into that, just a quick public service announcement. I'm really hoping, really hoping that um, Christmas Eve will be full of people that are part of our community, full of people that are in town visiting, family and friends, invite them all, which means that our parking lot will probably be relatively full. And uh, whether that's on a Sunday morning or on Christmas Eve, I want everyone to know just on the other side of the parking lot, you can't drive through the parking lot, so you have to drive around, but on the west, just if you go west of the parking lot, the church actually owns another parking uh, area, okay? And so it's just across First Avenue, so you'd have to come down on the other side of Dick's Hamburgers than you normally come to to park in this parking lot, and, and uh, you'll see parking, we'll have a sign there. So that's for like every week you could park there. Especially if you get here a little bit earlier than the rest of the crowd, feel free to park over there, and it's only like an extra 100 yards, or not even 100 yards, 100 feet of walking. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So it's way better than parking, you know, way down the street and having to walk uphill. It's not, there's no hills. It's literally on the same plateau. So I uh, just wanted you to know about that in case you either struggle to find parking on Sunday or on Christmas Eve, or if you want to just pre-park over there so that there's room for visitors and guests. So... Uh, you could, when you go to the parking lot today, just look straight through the parking lot and you'll see it over there. It's kind of on a little incline. Some people already parked there, so I'd love to fill that up as well. Okay, I'm back in. Why do I love Christmas? Have you ever asked that question? Like, seriously ask that, like, why, like, you just know you love it, but, you know, why do you love it? That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Why, why do you, why do I love Christmas? Um, think about that. Somebody may ask you over the next week why you love Christmas. Do you have a thoughtful answer to that question? Would you ask that question to somebody that you're having Christmas Eve or Christmas Day dinner with? Well, why, why, no, really, why do you love Christmas? Like, what is it about Christmas? Like, why do you love it? So we've been trying to answer that and trying to look maybe past sort of the immediate answers that we'd come to and, and ask a bigger question of what is it about these things, the lights, the sounds, the smells, the food, like what, what is it? Why, why do we love it so much? And, and so today will be our last time talking about this question, and we'll actually be um, looking in the Gospel of Mark. Why are we doing the Gospel of Mark? Well, we've actually, if you've been noticing, we've done the opening um, narrative of each of the Gospels. A go- there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're like biographies of the life of Jesus. And so the only one we haven't done yet is the Gospel of Mark. So that's where we'll be today. If you've got a Bible and you wanted to open it up, you can open it up to the Gospel of Mark. It's going to be near the back of your Bible. You can Google that as well. Or there are pew Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, these black Bibles. You can grab it. And if you do, we are going to be on, if you're using one of these pew Bibles, we're going to be on page 887. 887. So... We're going to look at John's, or sorry, Mark's opening section, the first 11 verses. And you may notice something interesting. 
that might seem different than the other openings to the other Gospels. So let's just go ahead and read it together, and then we'll talk about it. Here we go. Mark 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news. The Gospel means good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet, and here he's quoting now from the Old Testament, this prophecy that would come true, he says this, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Oh, this is going to be great. Now probably the wise men are going to come in, or something's coming next that's going to be good. This is this, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John? Who who is John? This is actually Jesus' cousin. Became known as John the baptizer because what did he do? He came baptizing in the wilderness. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Confessing their sins. John wore camel's hair garments with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, that's John, quote, One who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, the days of John, and his baptizing. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now is that the baby Jesus? (laughs) quite precocious, could already talk and hear language. No, this is the adult Jesus. So the Gospel of Mark starts with the adult Jesus and the adult John. And a few weeks ago when we were talking about the story of Mary, uh, we were talking about John and how his mother, Elizabeth, kind of very miraculously became pregnant with him and that she too had a special call from the Lord that her son would prepare the way for the Messiah. But Mark doesn't tell us any of that. Mark goes straight to the adult ministry of Jesus. Strange. No baby Jesus. No pre-incarnate Jesus like we saw a couple weeks ago in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just have here Jesus at his baptism as an adult. So how could this passage help in explaining why I love Christmas? Huh. How could this help? How does this help? Well, here's how it helps. I love Christmas because Christmas points to Jesus. And guess what? I love Jesus. I love Jesus. That's why I love Christmas, is because I love Jesus. I love who Jesus is. I love 
how Jesus models what it means to be a human being. I love what Jesus has accomplished for me. I know that he has taken my sin, and upon him was nailed my unrighteousness, my imperfection, my shortcoming. He took that for me. I love Jesus because I just love knowing him. I love being in relationship with him. I love experiencing his presence. I love talking to him. I love Jesus. And Christmas is about celebrating his birth. It's his birthday. Probably wasn't his actual birthday. We don't know his actual birthday. But it's the day that we celebrate. This is Jesus' 2000, probably 2026th birthday. And we celebrate him still because he's still alive. I love Christmas because I love Jesus. Christmas points to Jesus. So you could say it like this. There's no escaping the Jesusness of Christmas. That's why I love it. It's very hard to ignore Jesus at this time of year. And I love Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Is this coming together? Like, I love Christmas because I love Jesus. There's no escaping him this time of year. So imagine yourself driving uh, in your car with your niece or your nephew. And you're driving along and you drive past the nativity scene, right? You drive past the nativity scene and your niece or your nephew asks you this question. Hey, Uncle Eddie, what is that baby? Who's that baby? Why are there babies everywhere <laughs> at Christmas? Well, you say, uh, that's, um, that's baby Jesus. What's your niece or nephew going to ask you? Well, who's Jesus? Well, uh, well um, he was this guy that like, lived a long time ago. Who's Jesus? It's not hard to imagine yourself getting asked that question. When? At Christmas. So, you go along, you have the radio on, and all of a sudden you hear some Christmas songs come on the radio. There's a very good chance, not all, but a very good chance some of those Christmas songs might talk about this Jesus. So you need your nephew ask you, hey, Uncle Eddie, who's this song about? <laughs> what are they singing about? Well... It's about Jesus. Who's Jesus? Well, he's like, like a really good fella. You go along. Well, Uncle Eddie, why do people put up stars this time of year? Why, why so many stars this time of year? Well, <laughs> well, you know, there was this star in the Jesus story, and you see how this is going. And finally, your niece and nephew, they come to ask you the question. They say, well, Uncle Eddie, why do we even call this time of year Christmas? Well, <laughs> it's unavoidable. Why do we call it Christmas? 
um, I was watching with my son a new, there's a new Netflix show. It's quite good. Well done. Um, it's called The Boy Named Christmas or A Boy Named Christmas on Netflix. It's, it's pretty good. It's sort of an origin story of Christmas. See, there's a lot of those. And how did Santa Claus uh, come about? And uh, there's a boy named Nicholas, and he's living in what seems to be some Nordic land. And, and uh, he, he needs to find his way. His father's gone on a, on a long expedition, and he tries to go find his father. And um, so he makes his way. And, of course, there's a mouse that talks and things like that. And, and he finally makes his way, and he finds this this magical uh, village. And guess, it's a village of elves, as you may have guessed. And, and he ends up saving the day and rescuing the village from sort of an impressive uh, fear that they have. And um, um, he becomes sort of the hero, and, uh, and he's got a big heart, and he decides, man, these elves seem to have a gift for making toys. And so he uh, sort of unionizes them, and, <laughs> and then they become uh, a great manufacturer. And they end up, uh, the, the boy, Nicholas, he's probably around 12 years old at this point, he, of course, um, finds a reindeer that can fly, and so then he begins to deliver, he goes and finds the king of this Nordic country that he's from, and they go around and they bring toys and gifts to little boys and girls. And, and so this makes sense of why we do the things we do at Christmas, and and there's a really interesting uh, point at the end of the movie because the king and the boy Nicholas, they decide we should probably do this every year. This would be a nice thing. This brings joy and hope and laughter to the world. Of course we should do that. And, and they begin to ask, well, what should we call this day? And, and the boy Nicholas says, well, you know, my mother, she used to call me, or her nickname for me was Christmas. Let's call it Christmas. And I thought, wow, that's one way Uncle Eddie could answer the question of why do we call it Christmas? Isn't that interesting? It's obviously not why we call it Christmas. But this question has to be answered. We have to figure out why all over the world, not just in this country, people celebrate a time of year. Yes, it's a holiday, but it's clear that Christmas is a part of it. Why do we call it Christmas? What is Christmas? Obviously, Hopefully you know that Jesus was called the Christ, which is the Greek word for Savior, or the Hebrew word Messiah, translated to Greek. The Christ, the Savior. And on this day, we celebrate him. It's the Christ Mass. But isn't that interesting? At this time of year, nobody can avoid the awkwardness of why do we call it that? Or we've got to give a new definition, a new understanding of this. But you can't avoid it. Who is this Christ? It's really hard to avoid Jesus during Christmas. And I love Jesus. So I love Christmas. Because I like that Jesus is unavoidable. His goodness, his grace, what he's done in the world. I like that it's hard to escape it this time of year. Which is why I love Christmas. So someone might say, well... I'm in the practice of, or I know people who are in the practice of, simply saying Xmas. You seen this? Xmas. Uh, but let's say you just take Christ out of the name and you start calling it Christmas or Xmas. A keen child will ask you, well, Uncle Eddie, <laughs> uh, what is X? 
who is X? Um, why do we celebrate X this <laughs> time of year? Still, um, Eddie says, well, um, and Eddie probably wouldn't know this, and I actually found this out this week. Because, you see, I used to always think people were trying to just X out Christ, which is not actually the reason why, or at least the origin of why people would say Xmas. Do you know what the origin is? I didn't know this, and literally until Ryan told me this this week. So I looked it up, I studied it. The origin of Xmas actually comes from a long time ago. In fact, they... Uh, the very first, most scholars believe the first time it was used was back in uh, 1021. When a scholar, to just save space, um, wrote uh, X P mass. Now, in the Greek, X is the Greek letter chi. And what looks like a P is actually rho. So the first two letters of Christos, which is in the Greek Christ, are Cairo. So it's just a shorthand way of saying Christmas. So it's been around for a long time. And it's really pointing to what was a common practice, actually, in the early church. That has sort of a secret way of saying, I'm a part of the Jesus movement. I'm a part of the Christian church. You would put, you'd write X, just for Chi which is shorthand for saying, I'm with Christ. So, so actually, I'm not saying that people today don't actually say Xmas in order to cancel out Jesus. There's people that probably do that. I thought that's why people were doing that. I was wrong. So people probably still do it to say, I'd like to just remove the Christ out of this. Some people might just do it just to save space. But actually, they're still saying the same thing. The Christ Moss. A fun fact here, as I was studying this and looking this up, believe it or not, the great Christina Aguilera has a Christmas song called Extina Xmas. <laughs> Christina, you see what I'm saying? She Extina Xmas. And it just might be the worst song I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. I mean, she's an incredible talent, beautiful voice. This was the worst song I'd ever heard. There's literally only three words sung in the <laughs> entire song. Three words. It's a three-word song. Extinus Xmas. So people have been doing this. Even today, <laughs> they'll do that. So there's no avoiding it, I think, and that's why I love Christmas, because I love Jesus, and Christmas points to Jesus, unlike any other time, any other holiday in the year. This is literally happening all over the world. Not just in America, not just in Western nations, but literally all over the world, Jesus is very hard to ignore this time of year. Wow, I love Christmas. because, Guys, I love Jesus. You say, well, maybe Easter is actually a better celebration of Jesus. Maybe. It definitely points to the most important truth about Jesus, which is that it was confirmed that he was the Son of God, that his sacrifice for our sin was received by the Father when God brought him back to life, the resurrection. But I still think Christmas makes Jesus the least, least ignorable. And that's sort of part of our mission in this city and in the world is to make Jesus unignorable. That's part of why we exist. 
so that it's very hard to ignore Jesus. I think Christmas still, of all the Christian holidays, is still the best at that. Well, so then how can you read Mark's gospel and get so excited, (laughs) right? There's no Christmas in it. It does not recount the very first Christmas. So how can you get so excited? Great question. And the answer is really important. This is really important. Because sometimes we get this backwards. I love Christmas. I've said this already. I'm just going to drill it into you. Because it points to Jesus. And I love Jesus. I don't love Jesus because he gives us Christmas. And I love Christmas. Let me say that again. I love Christmas because it points to Jesus, and I love Jesus. I don't love Jesus because he gives us Christmas, and I love Christmas. Maybe at times in your life you've had that backwards. In the same way, I love Mark's gospel. The good news according to Mark. The account of Mark that Mark gives us of who? Jesus. So I love the intro to the gospel of Mark because it points to Jesus. It prepares the way for Jesus to take center stage. And who do I love, guys? I love Jesus. And what's the subject of the first 11 verses? John the baptizer. And guess what? I love John the baptizer. Why? Because he points people to Jesus. He prepares the way for Jesus to take center stage. And I love Jesus. See this? So I love anyone, anything, including Christmas, that prepares the way for Jesus to take center stage. Because I love Jesus. And he really is the only thing that should take center stage at any moment, on any day, in his world that he created and sustains by the power of his word. So let's look at the text. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christos. Who is he? The son of God. The son of God. So even though we don't get the full narrative, it's clear here that Mark knows he's the son of God. It's not like Mark didn't think that the the stuff about Mary was untrue, and so that's why he didn't put it in. He's just, let's get to the good stuff. Mark writes his gospel very quickly. It's the shortest gospel. It moves from scene to scene. It's sort of like the way 21st century people want their news. It's hard-hitting. It's fast. It goes from one account to the other. He's like, that like baby stuff is fun, but like he didn't do anything until he turned 33. So let's just like fast-forward. But he is the son of God. And this is the beginning of the good news. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. See, I am sending my messenger was the promise, the prophecy, that God would send someone to prepare the way for who? For Jesus, for the Messiah, for the Christos. That there would be somebody that would pave the way. One, a voice crying out in the wilderness. A one making paths straight for the Messiah. 
This was the prophecy. And Mark says, this is who John, the cousin of Jesus, was. The messenger. Mark, the gospel writer, is a messenger. John, the baptizer, he was a messenger. What is the Christmas season? It's a messenger. It's a messenger. Every year, Christmas as a season, as a time, as a holiday, is a messenger. And what is that messenger doing? That messenger is preparing the way, making the way straight, making the access easy. For who? The Jesus that I love. To come into the world, to make himself known, to mess with Uncle Eddie's, (laughs) make it hard for them, because now they have to They have to say, who's that on the road coming in? Well, (laughs) here's a little mini application. I love anyone and anything that's a messenger, that's paving the way, preparing the way, making straight the paths, and that includes you. You can be a messenger. God can send you. You can be a preparer of the way of the Lord into someone's life, into your family's dinner table, into your friend's Christmas dinner. You can be a paver. For what? To make straight the way of the Lord. What an opportunity. What an honor. What a privilege. You get to introduce or help Jesus introduce himself to those you love. What a privilege. With this book, with Christmas time as a helper, perhaps it's no, no, there's no easier time than Christmas time to be a messenger of this good news, just like Mark, just like John. With the help of this season that's already pointing, it's already confusing people, <laughs> this Christness of it all. Use it. Or if you're the one who it seems like Jesus is trying to introduce himself to you, don't turn away. Don't get distracted. God prepared this season for this moment that you wouldn't be able to turn away, that you had to wrestle with and consider the question, who is Jesus? Why is a symbol of his babiness everywhere? Why are there stars everywhere? Don't turn away from that. Wrestle with that. Who is this Jesus? God is preparing a way. And he's using his people to do it. So let's see exactly how John prepares this way for this Jesus that I love to come into people's lives, to come into this world. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. Let's read. So John came baptizing, this is verse 4, In the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. So what is baptism? It's it's literally he would take people down to the river and he would dunk them in the water and he would raise them up. And he said, you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn from your sin. God wants to clean you from your sin. So he's doing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside, that doesn't literally mean everyone, it just means people from all over, from all different villages and places, they were coming 
even people from Jerusalem, even from the big city, they were going out to John. And they were being baptized in the Jordan River. And what does it say? They were confessing their sins. John wore camel's hair, garment with a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts, and wild honey. (laughs) Why does he throw that in there? He's like, this is weird that people are going out to this guy. He's a strange fella. But yet people were drawn to him. There was something with gravitas about this guy. And people from everywhere, from every socioeconomic background, from every family history, they were going out to him. And what did John proclaim? Verse 7. He proclaimed, there is one who is more powerful than I am coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen, this baptism that I'm doing, it's not permanent. It's temporary. But I do it nonetheless to help you get ready for one that's coming after me, that he could do something that's eternal. He can literally reconnect you with God. So this was his message. So what is John doing? Well, if you've been with us, we just finished a a series in the fall called The Five C's. John's spending a lot of time with connection. The five C's are connect, converse, consider, um, (laughs) conviction, and confession. He's doing a lot of time in the first two. He's connecting with people from all over, and he's talking to them. He's having conversation with them. He's telling them about the one that's coming. He's telling them that they need to prepare their hearts. That they need, to, they need to get right with God and turn from their sin. The majority of that is conversation. What is he doing? He's preparing them to what? Consider this coming prophet. The one that's coming after him that actually is not only a prophet, but actually the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for since Isaiah predicted. That's what John's saying. He's, he's paving the way for consideration. He's paving the way for consideration. And this is, this is a really good way to think about the first two C's in the five C's that we talked about in the fall. It is paving the way. It's preparing the way. It's making straight. It's clearing the ground, so to speak, so that when Jesus shows up, there's not a bunch of distraction. It's not a windy road. It's not overgrown. But Jesus can come right in and take center stage. He can be on full blast. That's what connection and conversation does. Well, guess when you do a lot of connecting and conversing? At Christmas time. What if what you're doing is you're clearing the way, you're preparing the way so that Jesus can take center stage and that people might actually consider, is he the Christos? Is he the Messiah? Could he be the one that could save me, this city, this world? What if it's him? So that's what John's doing. He's connecting, he's conversing to prepare the stage so that when Jesus comes, people will know this is the one to consider for eternal life, for the forgiveness of sin that does not go away the next day when you fall short. I love that. We get to do that too. Prepare the way for Jesus to take center stage. Why would we do that? Because we love Jesus. And we know that he's good for everyone. Not just for us. So if I want to be like JTB, if I want to be like him, that's John the Baptist, 
What do we see him focusing on in these preparatory conversations? Is there anything? Did you pick anything up from the text? Let's look at it again. What do we see him focusing on? Verse 5. Verse 5. It says, He was baptizing them for, and having them confess their sins. Okay? So he's helping people acknowledge what? That they're sinful. That they've fallen short of the glory of God. That God has called them to a standard that they cannot keep. He's helping them just to acknowledge that. He's helping them to confess that. Yes, I am actually broken. I, I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. I am, I am sinful and I need some external help. So he's helping them acknowledge that. Number two, look at verse seven. He proclaimed. What did he proclaim? There's one coming more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to, to tie his shoes. He's going to do something that I cannot do. So what, what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming this good news about Jesus, which is what? He's helping people acknowledge, just like he helped them acknowledge their sinfulness, he's helping them acknowledge their ignorance regarding who God is and God's salvation plan. And he's not doing it in a mean-spirited way. He's doing it in an excited way. It's really good news. Yes, it's true that everything we've tried to this point hasn't worked. We've been ignorant to what God's doing. He's doing something we didn't actually think he would do. He's coming in the flesh. He's coming as a servant. He's coming as a carpenter's son. And he's going to save the world. So he does those two things. He helps people acknowledge that they're actually sinners. And then he says, that's okay, because God's actually sending a savior from your sin that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit that never washes off. So he's helping them acknowledge sin and acknowledge their ignorance and come to this place of humility. Again, he's setting the stage. You've got to humble yourself and know that you can't save yourself. And then you've got to acknowledge that I'm waiting for someone else to fill that void because I can't do it. And nothing we've tried, not religion, not goodness, not moral effort, nothing can fill that stage. So that's what John does. So that what? When Jesus does come, something amazing happens. Look what happens. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And he was also baptized in the Jordan by this John the baptizer. As soon as Jesus came up out of the water, verse 10, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What is Jesus doing in this moment? What is Mark saying that Jesus is doing? He's taking center stage. And guess what? God shines his spotlight <laughs> on him and says, that's the one. That's the one, guys. He's the one to consider. Not John the baptizer, who was pretty popular at this point. This is the one. John helped clear the way, prepare a straight path, made the stage perfect so that when Jesus stepped up, the spotlight of God could shine. That's the Messiah. That's the Christos, the Christ, the Savior. Wow. We can do that too. We can help people 
acknowledge their need for a savior by helping them see that they are. That that feeling that they have, that's real. Not every feeling you have is real. There's such thing as false guilt, but there's real guilt. Like there's a real sense that I've fallen short of some standard. That standard is God, your creator. And then help them with their ignorance problem. But God hasn't left you dead in your sin. He's provided you a way to life. And it comes through this Jesus that we celebrate at this time of year. So your niece, your nephew, they ask you, well, well, uncle, why, why would God need to send his son? And you tell them, well, because we are all sinners in need of a savior. Me too. And only God's son can save us from our sin. No other sacrifice would be enough. Uncle Eddie, thanks. You're so wise. <laughs> Not me. Then they say, well, but, but Uncle Eddie, why would God do that? Great question. Well, he must love us a lot. That's the only thing that makes sense. He must want to be with us. Not just now, but forever. That's why he did it. This is a act of love. Wow. So if preparing a way for the Lord Jesus seems intense to you, if telling people that they're sinful, if telling them that they're ignorant... That feels like a lot. And at first glance, it feels like a lot. So I don't really want to make Christmas all about that. (laughs) That feels like a downer. Just remember, this is exactly how you would tell a child when they ask you why God would send his son. You'd say, it's because of love. This is the greatest message of love. And it's only love because we are sinful and we all know it. And it is because we are ignorant that God comes to us, even despite our ignorance, to give us the knowledge and the good news of what he's doing. It's what you tell a child, right? So why don't we tell our adult friends or our Uncle Eddie's? They probably need to know too. I mean, there's something so cool about this passage here. When you read about Jesus' baptism, God the Father loved God the Son so much, right? He said, this is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, feel that. You need to feel the love of the Father for the Son. Why do I need to feel that love? Why do I need to feel that love? Because of what you're about to read in the rest of Mark's gospel that you find out that God actually sent that son to die because he loved you just as much. Wow, what? The father chose to send the son and the son, Jesus, chose to go to the cross to pay the ultimate price to save you. To be Christos for you 
so that you would not perish but have eternal life with him. But you got to understand how much the Father and the Son loved one another to truly understand how much they love you. So Christmas is the story that paves the way for that greater story. It's not the story to end all stories. It's just the first part of the off-ramp to another way, another path that leads to eternal life. That's why I love the story of Christmas. It helps people get off the freeway that's leading to nowhere and get on a new path that's leading somewhere. The Christmas story paves the way, the story that sets the scene, the story that brings to life the unfathomable love of God made available to the world through Jesus. Jesus saves. Jesus redeems. Jesus heals. Jesus comforts. Jesus brings hope. Not Christmas. Jesus does all these things. So I love Christmas because it ushers this Jesus into the forefront, into the spotlight, into the headlines, onto the sides of the street. He puts Jesus everywhere. And people need Jesus So I love Christmas because I love Jesus and the world needs to consider him.